Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Welcome to episode 84 of Life Beyond the Numbers. This week, I have borrowed an episode from my sister's podcast, Uniquely Wired. And this episode is actually a conversation between my sister, Shun, my brother, Alan, and I, where we talk about our other sister, Aoife, and our relationship to Aoife. Aoife died at 33. She was mentally and physically disabled all her life. And so our relationship with her, well, you can listen to what we all made of our individual relationship. But what was really interesting, I think, in the recording of this episode is the three of us grew up in the same household. We have the same parents and we're close. And yet we all, went through or experienced things in different ways. We all coped in different ways. We all saw the world through our own lens. And very often society leads us to believe that there is a right way to do things and a wrong way. There's a proper way to grieve. There's a proper way to mourn. There's a proper way to get over things there's a proper way to be happy to be joyful whatever but actually what matters is your experience and how you experience things and I suppose putting words and feelings to those experiences and everyone around you has a different experience a different background a different life you might never know anything much about them you might not want to know But also, everyone has a story to tell. And last week with Dr. Suzanne Evans, we looked into organisational change and how digging back into the past sometimes helps to shape the future or at least understand the present. And maybe that's the same for all of us. Every now and then reflecting back on where you came from What made you who you were today? What unique experiences do you have to bring to the world? Helps you to think about where you are today and where you're going in the future. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's facilitated by my sister, Shun. It's a chat amongst three siblings. We do open up and we hear stuff for the first time. And there was something very cathartic about recording this episode. Enjoy. 
it's so exciting to have my two amazing siblings here to sit down and talk about something that we've talked about. You know, we have had conversations over the years about Aoife and about how it was to have uh, a sister like Aoife. But I feel really honoured that I can sit down with you two here now and talk about her life and about our lives with her and share it with other people in the hopes that other people will benefit from, from hearing this or maybe just be interested in hearing it. So although it will be a chat more than anything, I was thinking that we would just start out by sort of like, what are your kind of earlier memories of, of having a sister like Aoife? How did you sort of, how did your young mind kind of make sense of, of her or of her life or of her abilities or disabilities? Because I know for me, uh, she was there already, of course, in the family by the time I came along. So I feel like it wasn't such a big upheaval in my life. I always knew that Aoife was Aoife and she was never any different and I never had any other kind of expectations of her or anything. But I wonder how it was for you both. Suze, maybe you want to start there? Well, I suppose the thing about it is I had no expectations either because, yeah, she was born the day before I turned four, but Alan was born when I was three. So maybe I expected another Alan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe maybe not of course so when I think back what's my earliest memory of her and I can't put my finger on anything sure but but the things that do come up for me when I think back is going to see her in Foynes which was this horrible institution outside of Limerick so first of all we had to drive probably about two two and a half hours to get there we would pack a picnic um, and eat chicken sandwiches on the side of the road. And I can still almost taste the chicken with the stuffing in it. And we would go to Foynes, which was, it was just awful. It, you know, it was like a hospital with the very, very, very high ceilings and big expansive corridors. And, and it was just full of kids who had special needs, were disabled and I don't think I could wrap my head around it at mm. all. Uh, I just remember feeling very, very uncomfortable, scared, and not really knowing what was going on and not feeling any desire to be there. In fact, I don't have any good memories at all of going there. And the other thing that comes up for me is, and this is one of my, I think, earliest memories, is being in school and we were asked to draw a picture of our family and I would have been six or seven because I remember the teacher in the class and I drew a picture of Alan mom dad and probably the dog and myself and there was no Aoife in it mm. and the teacher actually said to me where is Aoife and as far as I remember, I said something like, well, she doesn't live with us, so she's not part of our family. And that is, it's an early memory. It's a bit of a painful memory as well, because I think, I don't know if I necessarily got into trouble, but you know, the teacher was kind of adamant that Aoife should be in the picture. And, you know, what was it going on for me that I felt, no, she shouldn't. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. You know, I don't really know, but that's how I felt at that young age. Wow. And what's it like to sort of think back on that now? It took me a long time to be able to talk about that. 
mm-hmm. but it's a memory that comes up for me a lot. And I suppose over the years, I think, you know, I was confused, probably. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really understand perhaps what was going on. Family meant everybody being together in the one home. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was as simple as that. But also just maybe not understanding what was really going on, probably more than anything. Mm-hmm. It was still very much the dark ages in Ireland, wasn't it? Like 70s, 80s, even 90s, you know, people yeah, didn't talk guess, about these things much. Yeah, there was a bit of embarrassment, maybe, or shame about mm. having somebody that was handicapped. It was a word that people didn't use. It, I suppose people looked at you with pity. Sure. And maybe when, you know, when kids are born, it's an exciting time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for everyone. And I guess, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. So there's probably pain. There are painful memories associated with maybe not celebrating a birth sure. in the in the normal way. What about you, Alan? Yeah. So uh, I guess for me, early memories, I think really similarly, similar to you, Suze, was the journey to find seems to just stick in my head I mean I you know obviously I don't I was 15 months old when she was born so I don't remember anything about that or or the first kind of however many years of her life but yeah going in the car to finds and it yeah like interminable journey like on sort of potholy roads steamed up car windows and bumpy you know just that just seemed like to go on forever. It always seemed to be raining. (laughs) And yeah, and there was something in that, there was something in the kind of like, the kind of, I don't know, what would you call it? The sort of focus it took to get there and back or something. It was hard work to get there. Emotionally, you mean? Uh, Well, I just think the journey itself was was a a slog, you know. Mm -hmm. This was to visit Aoife for an hour or two. And we do like, it is it's a whole day, you know, it was a whole day. And also, I guess, quite difficult in, emotionally as well. And exactly like Sue said, the place itself finds, of course, didn't help <laughs> because we were, you know, anticipating this kind of um, grim scenario in this big echoey cold building and, and what felt like, you know, people who were maybe too busy to give enough time to the kids or us or you know it was I mean it was just hard I think I think they were probably very under-resourced there probably didn't have enough people to look after the amount of children who were in the place so there was no like oh welcome or it was just like you just got on with it and and also I think from our point of view as a family not having been kind of I, I don't I, maybe prepared isn't the right word but not having been educated perhaps as to the as to what was going on with really not not knowing her condition or just this kind of acceptance of the idea of handicapped it was just mm-hmm. you just kind of accepted this handicapped thing and it and it was like almost like so Susan talked about shame it was like almost like there's something wrong there's something really wrong and it's t- it's out of your hands in a sense and out even out of your your realm of understanding and it didn't help i guess wow yeah gosh i mean it's hard to it's hard to imagine nowadays that you know somebody wouldn't get a diagnosis i mean eva didn't even get a formal diagnosis 
which right. is absolutely shocking. You know, I mean, we know that she had the lack of oxygen at birth and it was birth asphyxiation from the umbilical cord and that led to what we are pretty sure is cerebral palsy and also with cognitive and learning difficulties and that. But it, that really shows how long ago, how kind of in the dark we all were and how in the dark maybe Ireland was at that time. It's funny because my memories are different. Obviously, she wasn't in the same place when I was born, I think. I, I don't know what year she went to, to Beaufort, but I have kind of mixed, I suppose, memories of Beaufort. The staff were always lovely everyone from the reception and all the people who worked there and everything but I had the same kind of thing I suppose like walking through the corridors to where her room was was always a bit it did used to scare me when I was very young you didn't know what to expect you know there was this sort of uncertainty about it I thought as a child but uh, you know the place was very bright and modern and everything like that so it was quite different when I did the walk a few years ago yeah um, I purposely went through fines oh, yeah, uh, because I wanted to because since since being a kid I, I just had this like idea of fines being this like evil place <laughs> I don't know what you could compare it to Salem's lot and uh, so yeah I, I kind of I purposely went went past it because I kind of felt like or through it because I, I had this weird idea of it I went to find the building and the building is still there but what I found out, is it just kind of led me in this weird sort of tangent, but which I'm about to go on now for a moment. <laughs> but it's cool, you know, it's like, it, it was like something, it, it, it was a, what, what do you call a um, resolution for me. So there was a new home there, first of all. There was a new care home, which I went to the door of, and I put my hand on the door handle, and I then took my hand off the door handle, and I thought, I don't need to go here. You know, I don't need to go and I have no reason to kind of revisit that in any way. But I was kind of pulled in that direction a little bit. Somebody told me, and I can't remember exactly who, but somebody told me that the building was still there, you know, who'd lived in the town for a while. So I went and checked it out. And like weirdly, there it was uh, kind of up up the hill a little bit. And it did look like a, a weird kind of sort of prefab flat flat building with tall windows and not as sinister as I imagined it would look. <laughs> but what I found was that it had been built in the, I think, 20s or 1920s or 30s as a hotel for the first uh, transatlantic flight passengers. Oh, the seaplane. Seaplane, yeah. Wow. Thing. What's no it called way. again? Anyway, that. And, and then next to it was a sort of uh, museum with one of these planes like sticking out of the front of it into the street almost. And I was just like, what's going on? It's like <laughs> Disneyland here. This is supposed to be like some weird confirmation of my darkest childhood <laughs> memories. And it's this kind of weird sort of wonderland of stuff. So I went to the museum and they let me in for free because I told them what I was doing and walked all around it and got to see the whole place. And and I was kind of like sucked into the magic of it all, you know, uh, of the kind of, wow, first transatlantic flights, this and then the building being the hotel but oh. the building also being like Aoife's hotel in some kind of weird way. And I had like, you know, what I would call a, a sort of breakthrough around my perception of, of, of the kind of grimness of the situation and the place. And I just, and, it, and it, it, even though it was like a sort of, uh, it was kind of intangible really because it was such a, a contrasting thing and such an unexpected thing. It just kind of blew all my preconceptions out of the, of the water but also gave me this kind of like idea that things are really not what you sometimes expect them to be 
you know, this is, this has just blown me away in a way that, so that I have kind of, I don't know, I came to terms with it all in that moment or something and, and felt like it was fine. Things were fine again. And those memories, and it made me think about when you're a kid, you create these really, you can create really powerful and lasting memories. Like what age would I have been? Three, four, five. I, I, and I took on those as really negative memories and it just stayed like that all my life. And, you know, on that day, I kind of like re- sort of replaced those me- memories with something new, I guess, and, uh, and a bit more grown up or whatever. So anyway, that's my, that's like my an update. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Upgrade. But um, so, yeah, so that was the building. It, it, was, it was built as a hotel. So there's something kind of like magical about that. why the, you know, the purpose for that building was this like transatlantic flight thing, looking after Hollywood stars and all this kind of business. Wow. And, uh, and that is amazing. <laughs> wow, gosh. I think maybe just the other thing about going to visit Aoife always was that there was never a feeling of any recognition. And I think that made, from, from on her part from of her, us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking now, Al, being in a car, you know, when you were going somewhere as a kid, it was usually to go somewhere kind of exciting. <laughs> and actually it was, and I'm sure mom and dad tried to make it somehow exciting. Mm-hmm. And that was the, maybe the picnic on the side of the road yeah. or whatever. But, you know, you got somewhere to, to see your sister and your sister didn't know who you were. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks I, for I bringing think- that up. I think that's a big one, mm. definitely. Sorry, Shun, did you? Say, no, 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 no. I'm just that. No, you're right. It is a big one. It is a big one. It's very. I think it's something that might be really hard for people to understand that somebody who's there, who's your sister, your flesh and blood, doesn't give any sort of obvious reaction to hearing your voice or hearing other people's voices that she should recognize or should in you know inverted commas it, it's and, and again I grew up sort of with that already established that's who Aoife was and stuff but I can remember I used to think that every time we sang her happy birthday that she laughed and smiled I don't know why I got that idea in my head and I can remember when I was smaller always singing it to her and sometimes she'd smile and laugh and sometimes she wouldn't but I was just like yeah I see she does she does do it she does do it you know you just look for those kind of patterns and, and it's so normal to look for for feedback from another person that's what our brains want to do they want to connect and stuff and when you don't get that you can kind of maybe make it up a bit yourself I think that's what I used to do anyway or think what's the point which is what I I think I did okay what's the point in seeing her I see because there's nothing coming like you say there's no feedback Mm -hmm. but I think one of the interesting things I was thinking about this this week is Aoife was born on the 12th of November and my birthday is the 13th and again as a kid your birthday is like the highlight of your year pretty much apart from Christmas and siblings birthdays or whatever Mm -hmm. so let's just say a week before my birthday I'm getting excited about my birthday and then the day before possibly or a couple of days before depending on the day of the week we had to go and see Aoife I see or the day before my birthday, it was Aoife's birthday. And that must have been hard because there was no celebration possibly in our house for that in the same way there was for mine. Okay. So you kind of got this like excitement for your birthday. And you can't see my kind of going up. And then there's a big kind of downer the day before. 
I see. Every year. And I still feel that. I still feel wow. that, you know, when it's Aoife's birthday, it's it's hard. It must be. It must yeah. Be. And uh, and then you go. And, but then my birthday, I've always made a big deal out of celebrating it. And I think one of the reasons is that is because possibly mom and dad made a great effort too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to help me really celebrate that day. And my birthday is always a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to think, you know, just that actually that week was full of emotions going up and down. Yeah. Yeah, I can yeah, I can imagine it now. And just hearing you saying it, of course it makes total sense, you know. Very <laughs> a real emotional roller coaster before your birthday. And as a child that must have been weird. Very strange. Yeah. Very different to what your friends would have experienced and or anybody else you knew. Mm. What 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 were you thinking, Al, with the with the sort of recognition or not getting obvious feedback from Aoife? Yeah, I guess I, I was I was just thinking about two things in relation to to that. One one was the, the sort of the going and there not necessarily being recognition. Uh, and then the other is the is sorry, going to visit. And the other is is the place, isn't it? The place and the the, the like other residents and the staff and everything. And that, at finds anyway, it was particularly negative be, in a way because of, of, you know, this is not, it's impossible to blame anyone, but be, because of the staff and what they, the responsibilities they had and, and, and also because of the other residents, it made it a really stressful situation for, for a child, for us as kids, I think. And, you know, it's, it's, an, it's definitely enough to kind of give you tra- yeah, tra- a traumatic response or whatever. And then, of course, that kind of coupled with, with Aoife being sort of unresponsive and, and all of that kind of did always make it a very uninviting prospect <laughs> going to see her. And one thing I wanted to say about the unresponsive part as well was, you know, I, I wonder, and I, I'm not sure about this or anything, but I wonder if, you know, the, the carers, and this is where, you know, something that makes me feel sad sometimes when I think about it, is if and I'm sure the carers knew her in a responsive way mm-hmm. or, or knew her in a way that they could listen out for certain things she she was communicating and how she was sort of talking to them or whatever. And, you know, in some ways I kind of feel sad that I didn't know her well enough to, to acknowledge those things. And it wasn't that... I didn't try or it's just that I didn't know to try mm-hmm. or, you know, there was no kind of like, Oh, when Aoife is hungry, she makes this sound or when Aoife is upset, she sounds like this. I mean, you know, things like being upset. Okay. Is, maybe that's pretty obvious, but you know, the more subtle things, there were no kind of pointers to those for us. And she may well have been communicating with us, but because of the subtle nature of it, we weren't tuned into it in, this, in a way. I wonder about that. Like, I, I can't say that for sure or whatever, but that's something I, I kind of think about sometimes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I do as well. And I feel that loss too of not, you know, sort of, and maybe even sometimes in a weird way, like envy of, of the, her carers who knew her sort of very, very well, <laughs> better than I did. And, and I think that's definitely why I started work, working how I did, you know, going to Camp Hill and working and going from there, working with kids with special needs, because I just always sort of felt like I wanted to look after her. 
but it was mm. too close to home. I just couldn't somehow. It was too painful, you know. But I, I've often wondered over the years as well if certain sounds meant something and we just never, we just didn't learn her language. You know, we just yeah. weren't yeah. around her enough to learn her language. And she used to come home for weekends and that. And we used to visit her and stuff, but that doesn't compare to being with somebody day after day, which just wasn't possible in, in our situation. And, the, it, you know, the, there was that kind of element of it being a, a bit traumatic, I think, for us as well. And in that situation, you're not receptive. When you're on uh, survival mode, you could almost say, you know, when you're in, in that zone of, of feeling like you don't want to be there, mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't feel like the right place to be and... Uh, and all of that, it, you are kind of not listening out for subtle th- things from your sister, you know. And but as children, I'm not sure we we were aware of that at all, and and the education around it wasn't there really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the pattern repeated itself because every time it was the same, so it mm-hmm. kind of becomes ingrained. And as humans, we we need connection with someone, and. I I can't say I felt connection. And that's very hard when it's your sibling, your flesh and blood. And there was resentment and anger at having to go and see her when I was getting nothing back. And then that becomes the default mode. Became something you just didn't, like over the years, you just didn't want to do. You just felt less and less that you wanted to do it. I, I don't think I ever felt I wanted to do it. Sure. That's the thing, you know, and it's not even that I felt it less and less. I think there is anger grew and resentment grew towards her because of having to go and see her or have to have her home without dealing with the emotional side of it or the trauma side, as you said, Al, or understanding what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there weren't many people in our town where we grew up that had handicapped children or siblings or whatever. So you didn't really talk about it with anyone else that understood what was going on. And also you didn't really talk about it. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> feelings mm-hmm. were not something that you you talked about when we were growing up. But there was an expectation there that you loved her or you wanted to spend time with her because she was your sister. And I think there was a mismatch then between what you were supposed to feel or should feel and how you felt. And I didn't really understand any of that, I think, until she died probably or close to, to, you know, later in life. But certainly the teenage years and under 10, I don't have any happy memories. Mm-hmm. I I probably second that. <laughs> agree. I you know I probably agree with that as well. And like going to see her was always so hard, and such a yeah such a difficult thing to do. Even though you know often when I went I would I don't know I get like shiver just thinking about it now <laughs> you know and it's, it's I, anyway and I'm, I'm not going to be I'm not ashamed to say it but uh, that was the situation we were in and I guess yeah I think it, it was 
I don't know what it was. Was it a, was it a traumatic response or, or whatever, or not getting something back for me? You know, it, it just felt like a, a real chore. You know, it just felt like a real, a really difficult job that we had to do. Really difficult, and we weren't. You know, and it, there was nothing that could prepare you for it, sort of thing. You know, and that's that's sad. That's really sad. But that's how it was and yeah and when it came to like school and yeah i mean in general the society we grew up in was very closed society emotionally mm. and stuff and i don't ever remember talking about Aoife at school or to friends or you know even within the family and you know that that just meant that i had my own personal reality when it came to Aoife that wasn't a kind of shared, <laughs> a shared Aoife culture. It was just, this is how I felt about it. And, and many, many of the feelings had been put there from when I was a little boy, frightened in going to Foynes. And they were probably the kind of guiding emotions for me, you know, <laughs> in, in many ways. They, that, that sort of trauma reaction, just every time I thought about going to see Aoife, boom, that happened. So, yeah. Full on, full on stuff. Well, yeah, it is. It really is. It really is. And again, I'm reminded of, of it was I like when I'm when I hear you guys talking like that. It was different for me, and I don't know if that's because when, you know, I suppose in primary school I did always feel a bit, sort of like I did wonder if people felt sorry for me for having a sister, a disabled sister. But then when I went into secondary school, there were two other girls in my year who also had siblings with disabilities so I think that really helped me you know I never felt like I was on my own it was comforting I guess in a way and I can remember in like fifth year maybe fifth year sixth year having a group of friends out uh, I think to celebrate Aoife's birthday it might have been I can't remember which birthday it was but she was home and and her friends came out and we had cake and stuff and I took photos and stuff and I think that was the only time that I kind of invited people in to to Aoife's life and to our life with Aoife and and it was a nice memory it was a really nice memory you know I still have the photos in that I remember going to the races one summer and I must have been about 14 or 15 because I was working in um, Grainy's restaurant and the gang that were working with me we must have all been going to the races and I brought them, Aoife was at home and I brought them to see Aoife because I I guess I had been talking about her or whatever. Mm. But, you know, it was really hard to bring people in as well because I don't think you can prepare anyone I know. Yeah, for I how she was because it's just so hard to imagine a, a human being that doesn't talk or acknowledge you or whatever unless they're in a coma or something, you know. Sure. And uh, yeah, and I, I can remember the, the the girls that were there at the time just being quite shocked and perhaps it left an impression on them as well. But it wasn't an easy, wasn't easy for people either yeah. outside of the family. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's hard for people to know what to say. It's like with death or with any difficult sort of life circumstance, you know often people just don't know what to say. So, and you yourself know that, and you kind of have this feeling that you don't want to 
cause awkwardness for people as well in a way or sort of cause a difficult situation so you, our tendency is to just avoid it isn't it I think it or can protect be protect them from it protect them from it and protect us from that difficulty as well yeah and as well as that I guess you know traditional you know people with disabilities had been kind of hidden away a bit mm -hmm. in Ireland and <clears throat> It, it was changing when we were growing up, of course, but, you know, the mentality was still there, you know, to, to quite a degree, I think, especially in rural areas, I'd imagine. So, uh, so I think that made it difficult to kind of not feel shame and not feel like you were perhaps putting other people in an awkward position if, if they were coming to visit and, and basically easier to just kind of ignore it, push it away. Um, and and I guess there was a kind of a religious undertone or overtone to it as well with, you know, kind of, um, she was a gift, which really that's not the language to use to a child to explain. I think like personally, I don't think that was the right way to try and explain a gift. And, you know, if she was smiling or whatever kind of, gesticulating for want of a better because that's kind of what she did you know she was talking to the angels and you know she was special oh, I never heard that and yeah you know and that was the older generation again I mean that would have been more you know grandma and that generation probably but again that just didn't sit well at the time it was very hard to reconcile that message, I think, for me, and especially the gift, because a gift is something you enjoy. And, um, yeah. and that wasn't. Yeah, she and wasn't. I, 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 I hear you. And I think the, like you said, about the religious thing probably has a lot to do with it, that the kind of the faith that there is a kind of higher power in a sense that's, that's given her this position to, and yeah, and you know, in, in so many ways, that's such a beautiful way to look at it. But we did kind of, maybe we grew up in a more rational household. Cynical. <laughs> rational. <laughs> no, but also questioning things. I yeah, think, yeah, you for know, sure. it's a different generation and we tend to question stuff maybe a little bit more or, I don't know, be a bit more dissenting <laughs> in for our sure. opinions and views. And, you know, whatever people believe, that's what they believe and that's okay. But perhaps it felt like that was what you were supposed to believe or you should believe. And that wasn't okay. Same, that wasn't how you same for me. It. Yeah, not at all. You know, I don't ever remember thinking that, you know, there were, it, it was just, it just felt kind of heavy and dark. <laughs> yeah, not, the, not the opposite thing that maybe our grandma was feeling. You're being so open and, you know, and really brave and it's amazing. So are you. Thank you. I'm not really, I'm just sort of, uh, I'm just, I'm just realizing even more, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just realizing, you know, even more how, how different, like everyone experiences life differently. That's a given. But, but within a family, how different our experiences are. I, I mean, I know we do share many feelings about about having Aoife as a sister, but I can just see, like listening to you talking about it, it's it's such a different experience to mine because I guess I didn't, you know, have foins and because she was already there, like I said, when I was born. But I think the sort of maybe a, a familiar theme that we all have 
is is the feeling of missing out on having a sister. I mean, we had a sister, but obviously it was so hard to connect to her and it was very hard to have a relationship with her. You know, uh, it was nobody's fault. It was just how it was. And, and I always, you know, I always wondered and I still do, you know, who would she have been? Had she not the umbilical wrapped around her neck at birth and been oxygen starved, like who would she have been? How would her personality have been? Would she have had a like great sense of humor like us, been for the crack? Would she have been really serious? Would we have teased her? And there's just a lifetime that we've missed out on. Well, she would have been herself. But, you know, it's a very, very, very strange feeling to, to lose, to mourn for something you never had or to feel a sense of loss for something you you don't you never had so the relationship that you had was not the one you'd like to have had and you were mourned for the relationship you didn't have almost as opposed to the one you did have and Mm -hmm. that's quite a hard thing to wrap your head around or for me it is anyway and I would have given anything to what to do a lot like if she was sitting here now well we wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place but we'd be having a different one mm-hmm. and uh, then I also think perhaps if Aoife had been fine you might not have been born soon so that would be a travesty altogether you know so it's like life is life and kind of from a philosophical standpoint I don't know any different either but it might take my own lifetime to not feel that sense of loss like part of me is is missing. Yeah. And, you know, that's okay. It is. It's hard. It's hard. But it's, it is the way it is. Yeah, I, I, I kind of... It's an interest. It's a really interesting one because I, I did used to spend a bit of time kind of fantasizing is what I'd call it, I suppose, about what she may have been like. Partly because in some ways I wanted her to get better. Mm-hmm. I, I had a feeling that that maybe, you know, one day Aoife would wake up and just go, hey, world, here I am. You know, I, I did. Like, I, this, is, this is something I held on to as a child. And I think that was a, something to, to keep me afloat in, in some way. And, and that, that was just the most, that thought, that indulging that thought for me was really a beautiful thing <laughs> even though it was very fleeting it was still it, it was still a kind of wow imagine if the, all of that pain was taken away I think is part of the thing mm-hmm. all of if all of my pain was taken away and that's the thing it was I think again through doing the walk which I haven't really t- introduced so much but I did this walk in 2016 where I walked from my house to my parents house in memory of Aoife and uh, two miles over the road it was three miles and yeah one of the things i I sort of realized through doing that walk was not like one of the reasons i did the walk was that because after isha died i felt like um i'm skipping ahead here now (laughs) after she died i felt like that life just went on as normal i it just felt i felt like a bit relieved and i felt like life was going ahead as normal and i thought that's not normal <laughs> or at least there's something there must be something I need to resolve here and, and at the time I didn't know because I think I was pushing it I buried it you know and 
but what I what I realized through doing the walk was that I I lived in a state of grief all those years, and I lived in a state of grief for her and for who she maybe could have been, as if she wasn't who she was meant to be, and so I find the and actually in some ways I took that on for myself too that I wasn't who I was meant to be, but that's another story. <laughs> But, you can um, start your own podcast. Yeah. <laughs> not who I was meant to be. I'm not sure it's got this amazing ring to it. No. <laughs> um, but uh, so, and that in itself is a really yeah that 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 sense of grief and that sense of of loss that I felt for Aoife and for me around Aoife, yeah, was was definitely something really big but also something I didn't want to go near and and I think yeah I just held on to those concepts even after she died I think those concepts were just there sort of floating around she wasn't who she was meant to be and then when I realized that the grief was always there that's when I started to kind of open up my emotions to it in some way I kind of realized oh my god there's like an overriding sadness within me in some way that affects everything and but as a kid, I couldn't cope with it, with Aoife. So I pushed it away. I couldn't cope with it. And for whatever reason, that's what happened. And when you can't cope with something, you bury it. Or something, you know, or you go insane, whatever. And so it was buried. And But yeah, bit by bit, since she died. And I couldn't cope with it within her lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is the truth of it for me. And... And, and so it was only after she died and that I could begin to understand my feelings around her life, which sounds so tragic <laughs> in so many ways, but that was it. That's it, you know. But I think it was, you know, I mean, I obviously don't want to speak for you, but for myself, it's more like you're afraid to say how you felt, you know, like to say that you felt anger or resentment towards Aoife. Uh, who had never done anything in her life <laughs> to you that just sounded like monster type behavior and you know I suppose there was guilt associated with that and shame again or whatever and so it was easier just not to think about it but like you say if you suppress or repress something I mean it's going to come out eventually and I suppose there was relief in a way when Aoife died because it allowed me to open up. And I can remember having a conversation with uh, a conversation about how I felt resentment with Uncle Jim. And, And he was absolutely fantastic, actually. And it was a big thing for me to say that out loud that, you know, that this is what I felt towards her. And he said, I think, you know, his kind of what he said to me was, you know, being able to say it is, is the start of the process for you to 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 feel it and to get through it. Yeah, and, because, yeah, yeah. Sh- shame needs secrecy. And when it doesn't have secrecy, then it loses its power, doesn't it? So it's really great that you were able to, to trust somebody and talk like that so openly and a family member, especially. I suppose he's a priest as well. So he was used to listening to people talking about all sorts of things, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, he's, he's, I like talking to Jim and he makes it, he made it easy for me to say stuff like that. 
And I think once I open that part of me, then, yeah, I suppose some sort of healing began or, you know, yeah, the, the world went on, even though that's how I felt. And I can take a deep breath and I can keep going. And, and I'm not a monster. No, you're, you're well, Alan might think I am, but I'm not. I haven't thought that for like at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> I was gonna, I thought you were gonna say a couple of minutes, but yeah. <laughs> but is it any wonder I was a monster with you, Alan? Because we, we just didn't know how to cope. So I yeah. took I took a lot of it out on you. Well, yeah, and you know, we were we were our own, it just happened as well that we are we are who we are, you know. I'm kind of we're just different we have very different characters and we just rubbed each other up the wrong way all the time <laughs> but we also had heart and pain and yeah. whatever going on and that was probably a bit of fuel to the fire it definitely must have been i think it prevented us from having a sort of yeah a meaningful relationship as kids definitely yeah it was, it was tense but look at us now, huh? I know. <laughs> it's funny, you know, Alan, you saying that, like, having a sort of fantasy that Eva would wake up one day and be healthy. I can remember when she came home for weekends <clears throat> and we used to share a room. And, and I used to I used to imagine at night that, that she would get up, that she had some kind of secret zip that she'd open her outer kind of body or what we could see and get crawl out of it and she was actually a really fully able human and she'd walk around and just do totally normal things like at night she'd sneak out of the bedroom I'd imagine and go into the kitchen and like eat an apple and like how amazing would that be if she could do something as simple as that and it's just like when I think of it now as an adult it's the simplicity of those tasks I imagine her doing makes me realize how how disabled she was and how precious our you know, our movement is and our ability is, and it's just, it's just, uh, it's a lovely memory. It's, it makes me sad to think about it too, but it's, uh, it makes me happy as well. Like imagining her going in and sneakily turning on the telly and watching cartoons at two in the morning or something. And then seeing that it's getting bright. So she sneaks back into the bedroom and puts on her suit again and pretends to be asleep. <laughs> I, I love it. I love the idea of the suit. Especially if you like, imagine if you'd found the suit when she wasn't in it, what, what would your, re your reaction have been? But, well, um, mine, mine would have been pretty cool because I knew about it. So. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> that's, that's so cool, though. And I maybe don't she think did. I ever had those kind of. No. No, I don't, I don't think so. Interesting. It is, it is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You were going to say something there, Al? No. <laughs> I don't know. Was I? <laughs> I don't know. No, I don't know. The, yeah, I like the suit thing. And, and yeah, even though, you know, even though they were quite weird memories, those ones of her waking up and being like, hey, it was kind of, there was something fun about it as well, definitely. <laughs> you know, not, not in, I think probably in a similar way to the suit thing you're talking about. Yeah. There is a similar, yeah. There was something kind of fun about that as well. Um, yeah. So, because I, I don't want to kind of like go, oh, the pain I was in, and if only it was like this, and blah, blah. Uh, you know, but know. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. I suppose it does 
teach you in a way not to take things for granted. And even though I, I often have to remind myself of that, I think it's a great way of reminding yourself of that. And never having taken a single step or uttered a single word that actually it's kind of on us to use our voices mm. mm-hmm. because we can, because we have one and it's on us to move around the world and do stuff because we can. Mm-hmm. And they're gifts that we can't take for granted. Now there is your gift. No, that's amazing. Yeah. And I, I don't think I've, yeah. I don't think I really thought about it like that. And I love that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I remember when I did the Camino, just, I mean, it was a different walk, but, you know, walking on the Camino and I had one day and it was the worst bloody day ever. My feet were just like in absolute tatters with blisters and it was 35 degrees and I'd gotten lost in the morning and it was just awful. And I was trying to convince myself not to be such a miserable, <laughs> like cranky walker. And that actually I was able to walk. And it, that was the only thing probably that kept me going that day was that Aoife couldn't do this, but I could. And I just had to keep going to get to the next place. And that was really, that was one of the big drivers for me was because I, I really just wanted to lie down on the ground and hope somebody found me. It's just bloody miserable. And, you know, come on, like, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, I know the feeling. Blister. <laughs> Good. That's, that's beautiful. Good perspective. And I, and I guess, you know, I, I, I did, I did have the same thoughts myself when I was, when I was doing my walk. But, but I really like I really like the idea of of bringing that I, that concept of into everything I do, you know, that concept of here's what maybe Aoife can do, or into into more stuff in my life, you know, because I definitely used it within the walk, but to to have it as a kind of yeah, as an affirmation or a mantra, I like quite like that idea. At this point, the conversation sort of came to a natural end, so we decided to leave it there. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work, and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.